Dr. Holly Jean Buck has recently released two brilliant books on the seemingly science fictional subject of geoengineering. The first, published it by Verso Books in 2019, is called After Geoengineering, Climate Tragedy, Repair, and Restoration. It focuses on the overwhelming questions that humanity now has to face as we begin finally to confront the reality of the climate crisis. The second book, entitled Has It Come to This, came out at the end of last year. Co-edited with J.P. Sapinski and Andreas Malm, it looks at the promise and perils of geoengineering from a wide variety of theoretical perspectives. Considering that celebrated journalist Elizabeth Colbert is set to release her own book on solar geoengineering in just a few days, it's clear that this technology is moving from being treated as a mere thought experiment into becoming a subject that people are taking very seriously. In this conversation, we talk about some of the complex social effects of climate solutions, how to develop a better language for phasing out fossil fuels, how we need to combine emotional methods for moving people with rigorous and ambitious system-wide planning for a future in which we are dedicated long-term to drawing down carbon, and what it means to resign ourselves to the scientific certainty that we need to take seriously solutions that seem to this point completely utopian so that we can make space for futures where collective survival is possible. Um, so, you know, I've been working through the book, which is this, you know, unbelievable kind of meal of a book. There's just so much information in it. It comes at a time where, you know, you know, 2020 was the hottest year on record, you know, 1.2 degrees Celsius over averages. There were record heat waves, droughts, fires, um, the busiest Atlantic hurricane season on record. And against the kind of doom that seeps in as that dawns on us, um, it seems like your argument is that geoengineering can provide some hope of a practical solution, and yet you're you're careful to also convey a a grave concern and anxiety yourself. Like the reader really sympathizes with the position that you're writing from, um, and I think that powerful anxiety that you convey really gives the book focus and an uncommon uh, cohesiveness that makes it a really great resource. So, um, first of all, just like um, thank you for writing the book. Uh, I don't know how long it took, but it seems like it, it was really an incredibly, you know, thoroughgoing kind of effort to put it together to begin with. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> it took about, um, I don't know, six months of really intensive writing every day, but then a long editing process. Um, it's hard to keep up with how fast climate change and climate policy and climate activism are moving. So every time I'd have to go back and revisit things that because the picture just keeps changing. Exactly. Which in some ways is good. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, and so in this shifting context, you're sort of arguing that um, you know, technological modernity and, and the acceleration of, of everything, of extraction and production can actually be addressed through the same capacity for te technological inno innovation. And specifically, you're arguing that um, this carbon frontier, as you call it, of innovators might actually provide us a way out of our doomsday scenarios. Um, and, you know, you're, you talk about how that shouldn't convince us that mitigation is unnecessary, but you're, you're talking about um, technological solutions as socially just answers. And, and so like you're writing against, in a sense, this like established critique of enlightenment reasoning um, and like technological trajectorism, as Kara Daggett calls it. Um, 
you know, why, how did you come to that position as a thinker? Um, like, why do you feel as though there's nothing maybe intrinsic to technology itself that makes it faded to just corrupt nature and destroy the planet? Well, I think the problem lies in the social relations that grow up around these technologies. Mm -hmm. I mean, broadly speaking, (laughs) right? So there's a real question, you know, there's, are fossil fuels inherently bad? Most of us would say, yes, they are because you combust them and they produce emissions um, that are damaging for the planet. Um, But what's really pernicious about them is the social relations of exploitation that have grown up around them, um, you know, between the global north and the global south, um, within communities where extraction takes place and refining takes place. I mean, so when we say we want to end fossil fuels, do we want to end the fossil fuel industry, the social relations, both? Um, And the reason I'm bringing that up right now is because on the horizon, there's this idea of decarbonized or lower carbon fossil fuels that the fossil fuel industry can continue into the foreseeable future, but it'll just do so with mitigation measures in place and with carbon removal in place. So I think it's really urgent that we address this question um, of what is it we're trying to end? Where does the danger exactly lie and have a really sharp analysis of that? And and your book is so uh, dialectical, so self-critical, you know, that, that question of like, what do we mean by decarbonizing? You know, you're, you're constantly interrogating your own kind of terms and it makes it such like, as I say, this like really rich resource. Um, you talk about, and, and you take a step back and sort of talk about the discourse as a whole and try and tease apart the discourse and the data, as you sort of put it. And you say there's this abyss between people that uh, look at technology really optimistically and they almost get sort of vilified for, um, you know, being pinning hopes on technology and ignoring exploitative, unequal, and even violent social relations. And then there are the people on the other side of the abyss who do have a deep understanding of that, uh, those material social relations. But what you want to suggest is that these ritual rejections of the other side um, aren't allowing us to really um, address the problem. That you, you say, in fact, there might be a hybrid position. Um, and, and so I think like that, that's really useful. Um, it's not about a kind of necessarily, I guess, bipartisanism, which is, is a bit of a co-opted, almost like it feels like increasingly empty sort of term, you know, it's more about the, what Kathy Weeks would call the practicality of utopian thinking. The crises that we face require utopian thinking. It's not about like something ethereal. Instead, as you say in the book, um, even muddling through even muddling through these social innovations looks like an amazing social feat, an orchestration so elaborate and requiring so much luck that people may find it a fantastic utopian dream. What you're doing too is is sort of like saying that there are multiple utopias in a sense. There's a kind of pragmatic utopia, and then there's a kind of utopia that is, is I think you'd use the term biophilic, like just in love with nature. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that, like are there these t- competing utopias right now? I guess one thing to note is that the temporality of this book is about one to 200 years that I'm trying to work with. So in that sense, hmm. you know, I'd like to offer 
a practical utopia that can make space for other types of utopias down the line that that doesn't foreclose possibilities. And by, by foreclosing possibilities, I mean once a species has gone extinct, that's that's it, right? So we, we need to do things now to make space for various futures later on. Hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really useful because you you are engaging with these hard limits and this kind of, you know, the real materialism of, um, you know, these things that we do tend to kind of like as human beings, like almost deify, right? You clearly, you know, are, are a little bit restless about that sort of idea of, for example, the forest. You, you ask the question, what exactly is a forest? Which I think is, you know, not a question people are asking necessarily. You know, you talk about um, how forests tend to be looked at as, as you know, key carbon sinks, um, but that that's actually also this discourse that's a little bit skewed. Like, you you, you know, you give this incredible um, fact of, around the actual amount of carbon dioxide that forests uh, sequester, that in order to sequester one gigaton of carbon dioxide, you would have to a forest 70 to 90 million hectares or a land area about twice the size of California. Um, and so, I mean... The, this idea of co- contextualizing our concentration on forests as one sort of emblematic or exemplary space um, is is useful critically, I think, because, you know, for example, when the Amazon wildfires are raging, there is this global fixation on the tragedy of that particular ecosystem dying, but it's contextualized within the climate crisis in ways that aren't exactly accurate. Like wetlands, for example, are more important. You talk about the crazy rate of decline within wetlands. That's not necessarily something we're reading about every day. Is it just that it's less spectacular, do you think? That's a good question. I mean, yes, I mean, often, right? We're not always focusing on the the big picture. We're focusing on some shiny part of it that's mediagenic. Um, and so, you know, the imagination of the Amazon is probably more mediagenic than the imagination of a a wetland. I, th- I think too. What I want to do with thinking about these natural climate solutions and everything in the book is bring back in the social relations too. So, is an afforestation scheme going to kick people off their land? Is it going to in- involve plantation labor, or is it going to be an agroforestry project that might be beneficial to food food security? I mean, there's all these questions that we need to have in there. And and it's overwhelming, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And you actually, you talk about how, like at one point in the book, you, you flat out say it's exhausting to think about all these entrenched power interests. Um, and, and I was thinking about that in relationship to an article that you put out recently, a co-authored article on pandemic politics and how this relates to the level of coordination that's needed to actually accomplish geoengineering, which is like such a, a powerful theme in the book. In your yeah, in your pandemic politics article, though, um, you you kind of reflect with these other authors on the diverse responses to the coronavirus pandemic uh, in different countries, and I want to ask you about that in relationship to our lack of, as you put it, a big picture perspective, um, and how we can't really necessarily think about like these globally interconnected social relationships that we have. Um, you know, you in that article, you talk about how. COVID-19 really reveals the dysfunction of the, what you term the science media policy ecosystem. You also suggest that it it conveys a kind of hopeful lesson that people are certainly willing to take radical action to save the lives of the vulnerable, but that what we're missing 
is global governance, right? Institutions of global governance that can mobilize people to that end. In your thinking on uh, what kinds of institutions we need, do they, you know, uh, resemble something like the World Health Organization, or do you imagine something more radical coming into being? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> I don't want to go too deep into our failed COVID response because that would take quite a long time. But mm-hmm. one of the lessons there is about what happens when you have a narrow set of experts that are focusing on one particular metric, right? So a lot of the policy has been optimizing around um, lowering cases or on are not, or even on hospitalization, which is a better metric. But to take a bigger picture, you'd want to be thinking about the entire health system, right? And then, you know, cascading out from that, other things like food insecurity or um, social stability. I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of things on there to that we don't have an institution or a set of experts that can optimize and think about, you know, what are going to be the delayed vaccinations for other diseases? What's going to be the mental health impacts? Um, and so, so people read that, you know, in the initial stages of debate as a health versus the economy type of thing. And a lot of the public polling um, around support for various measures was framed around, you know, economy versus uh, COVID. But really, I mean, it's a false frame, right? And so I see the danger of replicating that with climate when climate enters this emergency space and we have, you know, these targets which are around temperature or they're around emissions. Um, and you have a narrow set of experts that are kind of privileged as the experts we need guiding this. But really what you need is a coalition of people from all these different fields in the case of climate climate science, but also, you know, everything from psychology to engineering, you know, infrastructure, <laughs> urban planning, whatever, right? The whole range to design a response that's sensitive to all these different parameters. Um, and it's just not how our knowledge enterprises are designed or our political institutions. Yeah, um, for sure. So, you know, I can imagine definitely things that are better on both the national and the international level. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is the, this is the horizon of possibility that, um, you know, a number of writers that publish with Verso Press are sort of trying to imagine. Um, and so I think your book really fits with that, with that press in many ways. Um, I wanted to uh, reference another kind of radical thinker, another geographer, uh, David Harvey, who has this essay, Capital Evolves, um, which you know, notes that you know, many of the ch- massive changes that we've seen globally over especially the last 40 years have occurred without any real consideration of their lasting impacts. There's simply no um, uh, structure that allows for us to, to anticipate these, these impacts. Um, and, and he also, of course, in that essay sort of talks about like all of these different interlocking spheres of capitalism and how they seem to uh, uh, function almost spontaneously without any level of, of sort of supervision or, or democratic control. Um, I, I wanted to ask whether, you know, uh, Harvey is an influence maybe on your thinking, whether you have these kind of primary 
methodological influences or inspirations? Who are the thinkers perhaps that, uh, you know, you, you use as a kind of foundation for thinking about capitalism in particular? I ask because, you know, after ge- geoengineering does contain this really robust critique of capitalism, like you say, I don't see the evidence that capitalism is capable of acting in its own long-term benefit, especially not consciously on the scale and temporality of mobilization that this intervention would require. You, you call capitalism this predatory, inelegant, and fragmented system. I mean, I guess Harvey would be a more of a latent influence. I think that both um, Jason Moore and Andreas Malm have influenced my work in very different ways. Um, Mm-hmm. And I should mention that, so at the same time as I was writing this book, um, my colleagues, uh, J.P. Sapinski and Andreas Malm and I were putting together an edited volume, um, which has, you know, it includes like 20 different authors, I think 15 chapters. And many of those authors are really engaged with these debates. Uh, it's called Has It Come to This? The Promise and Peril of Geoengineering on the Brink. It was published by Rutgers University Press um, in November. So in some ways, I felt like I didn't have to take on a lot of these theoretical questions in my book because I knew we had all these great scholars that were excited about delving into them in this edited volume. And, uh, you know, Mom has his own uh, recently published book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is this impassioned argument um, for, you know, uh, uh, a more militant climate activism, um, that I, that I've been reading and, uh, you know, loving, I mean, it's, it's inspiring in terms of its communication strategy, especially like this, this emotional register of communication. Um, and I actually had some questions about that as well. Um, because your, your book does blend multiple kind of registers and ways of engaging the reader um, you know, uh, and, and you also have this article, uh, co-authored article um, called Gender and Geoengineering, uh, where you talk about uh, emotion to some extent, um, you know, and the, 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 the ways in which we need a climate science that is, uh, to use another term that, that you develop, emotionally legible. Um, and I think there's an enormous amount of value in, in trying to, like, figure out that more kind of balanced or, or hybrid model of of thinking through uh these these sorts of initiatives like not just in the um you know the hard-headed and very like materialist and often quite alienating uh uh, ways that we communicate climate science but also as you put it like the lived experience of climate that that stuff that actually causes uh public concern and could actually like move the needle in terms of public opinion where's your thinking at in terms of like the level of emotion that is, uh, you know, expedient, that's strategically like worthwhile when it comes to trying to like communicate these ideas. I mean, you know, you've published a number of academic articles that do deal in a certain kind of like technical language, but at the same time, as they say, like balancing it with um, these more kind of like emotionally laden critiques of uh, uh, the system. Like, do you, do you have a conscious, uh, strategic sense of how to balance those two things or is it more kind of intuitive? I don't know if I have a, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a strategic sense, Mm -hmm. but I know that it's critical. I mean, it often gets parceled out in a lot of these climate policy debates. Um, and I, I don't think we're going to get anywhere unless we engage with it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you make that argument really clear and after geoengineering in relationship to kind of the Green New, Green New Deal uh, or what you call like reformist green capitalism, you say that it's, it's not made of strong enough feeling to force a vast, deep carbon cleanup infrastructure into being. I ha- underlined it several times. You know, you say this genesis instead needs to be driven by the desires of people, uh, people who at this point have no idea that uh, carbon capture and storage even exists. Um, so how, you know, the question is clearly like, how do you create a language um, that really resonates with people that kind of breaks through these these blockages that see, you know, like this, this is being somehow just the realm of science or just the realm of academics, um, you know, I, and I think we can. We, we can think about this in relationship to COVID-19. I mean, it's it's an unprecedented pandemic that then now gives everyone on the globe a common uh, frame of reference in some sense, like a way of thinking through shared vulnerability in ways that like just were not available before. Um, you know, your book begins with this question of like wh- whether we've reached the shift and how do we know when we've reached that that kind of critical moment in um, in the climate crisis we're still waiting for that moment as it were. But I think that the whole thing is like, we need communicators like you who can also articulate a concrete vision of regeneration, right? Like the reversal of soil carbon, for example, is just not something we're going to hear about automatically. Um, Why do you think we exclusively hear the bad news? Like, is it that there's so much more of it or is it that the media, there's a kind of media bias almost toward doom, toward what you term extreme climate suffering? How do we counteract it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a media bias since a long time, but now it's also an algorithmic bias, right? So that's Mm. both more challenging and maybe more addressable in some ways. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And you talk about a kind of algorithmic literacy as one of these key things that we need to maybe develop. I think also like increasing maybe you talk about the, the, the need to increase this kind of demand for open source knowledge. And how capitalism, again, is not really bent on like innovation. It tends to thwart innovation in favor of like enclosing knowledge, you know, sequestering knowledge. This is something that I, I've been thinking about in, in relationship to um, just, you know, material questions about how to make this technology like cheaper, more available, right? Like um, if, if you make it open source, don't you also make it cheaper over time? Like if it's not you know, if it's not um, commodified and copyrighted in, in by, by corporations, doesn't that free up the flow of knowledge? Like, and how do we kind of like make that connection clear for people that, you know, the, the how expensive renewable energy is, is actually related to um, how enclosed the knowledge around like algorithms, information, this kind of data driven science also is like that, that seems to be also a kind of theme in your book. Well, I think that what we need is a, you know, there's a broader movement here about transparency of data. We've Mm -hmm. seen that in the so-called tech clash, we've seen that in relationship to COVID. I mean, there's now a demand for, at a minimum, transparent and open data. Um, Going beyond that, you know, actually people having ownership over their data, uh, running the internet like a public utility. I mean, you could go pretty far with some of the demands, but what what I'm hoping is that that sensibility will also have a feedback loop with how we're thinking about decarbonization and some of those 
demands will, you know, transfer and build on each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I kind of wanted to maybe um, shift gears to some extent um, and talk about, you know, consumption as this kind of like th- this kind of salvation somehow, like the idea of behavioral change of, you know, like trying to inspire uh, uh, more ethical consumerism. You're deeply dialectical about consumption um, as an act that does imply this kind of network. And you don't really place a lot of hope in just behavioral change. There's this uh, incredible moment in After Geoengineering where you talk about, um, you know, a strategy of mitigation where, you know, like the global demand for meat stops rising and then decreases and, you know, trying to bet on um, the the this aspect of the Green New Deal in some sense that people are going to accept, you know, reduced air travel or, you know, lack of hamburgers or whatever it may be. Um, you say, like, I don't know anyone that would actually place a bet on that specific strategy of mitigation. Um, you know, I've heard you also relate this to, like, the plastics industry. Do you think that there is a moment where um, you know, this kind of sustainability model of ethical consumer consumerism uh, begins to like break down and the and public opinion starts to really shift toward more, you know, like basically a more radical way of imagining healing the planet. There are these kind of symbols, clearly like recycling, these symbols of sustainability that in some sense limit our imagination. Do we need an alternative set of symbols, a different language for you know, marketing a more complex idea like regeneration here? I think the idea we need to develop a better language for is around phase out. Hmm. And so, you know, you could also call that managed decline, which I wouldn't recommend because Hmm. management sounds boring and decline sounds grim. So if you package them together, that's like doubly bad. But, you know, the idea that a society could choose to stop producing certain things, whether that's coal, single-use plastics, um, tobacco, pesticides, whatever, you know, and and ramp down and exit from that activity and that form of production. Um, to be able to see that as actually a win, as an affirmative thing and not as a, a threat or a loss or, you know. Yeah. A form of decline, right? I mean, so th- that's kind of the the cultural work we have ahead. Yeah, and at the level of culture, like I see so much of the kind of so called energy humanities um, trying to understand um, the place of oil, fossil fuels in our consciousness at the cultural level. There, you have this this section of after geoengineering where you talk about the fact that our society is patterned around. Uh, fossil fuel extraction and greenhouse gas in a very like long lasting kind of like historically entrenched way. And so that suggests that a society patterned around drawing down carbon would have quote specific ways of looking, feeling and working. Um, And it it made me think of this uh, recent article in South Atlantic quarterly by Imre Zeman and Darren Barney uh, from solar to solarity, where they talk about how fossil fuels were important to, as they term it, fracturing social life over the course of the 20th century. And like against that, you seem to, at the very beginning of the book, pose this idea of trying to empathize with extreme climate suffering. You you kind of uh, suggest that um, die-ins, for example, is an act of protest, um, extinction rebellions, massive die-ins could matter as a means of like creating mass movements. 
I, I wonder whether you think those affective strategies of communication are effective. Like if somebody like Greta Thunberg actually stands a chance against the, you know, PR forces of the fossil fuel industry, which are just about jobs and economics and so on. I mean, I think those affective strategies are good to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we, I think I also think what we really need right now is detailed planning. Mm-hmm. And so those, those can be, uh, maybe maybe com- maybe not at odds maybe let's call them complementary right and so i think a lot of the work that's been done by you know movements that are led by indigenous people and youth to halt extraction you know what what we've seen um in the us and canada and elsewhere are have been so critical and we need to pair that also with really ambitious phasing out of fossil fuels and increasing of, um, you know, renewables and carbon removal. And so so those work together. I don't see them as um, just one or the other, right? Yeah. And, you know, I I see lots of examples of that happening. You know, this is why I mentioned uh, Thunberg, right? There's a, a way in which her performance of affect is like always couched in, in hard data. Um, and, you know, I, I think this this like two prong thing, these complementary things of, you know, detailed planning and affective strategies, you know, it just seems to me like it is extremely powerful. But there are this is why I kind of stress the, the PR function of uh, the fossil fuel industry, because right now in Canada, we're seeing this this really powerful push to, I think, control the messaging around the canceling of the Keystone XL pipeline. And make it entirely about job loss, entirely about uh, the economic impact. Um, we're unfortunately seeing, I think, a domination of the airwaves by this like more just you know supposedly rational perspective. There is still this kind of um, subversive and divergent discourse that instead wants to focus on how you know this the cancellation of this one pipeline is only one small step in a larger struggle for um, a healthier, regenerative kind of future. Um, but uh, I want to get back on track if I can and uh, talk, I guess, about the ways in which, you know, we can we can start now to uh, actually concretely propose these ideas that, from your perspective, feel like uh, science fiction. And, and some of the ways in which your book actually um, acknowledges that, for the most part, ideas around carbon capture and storage do feel like futuristic. They feel science fictional. Is part of the point in using this kind of uh, rhetorical tactic uh, to, on some level, excel these radical initiatives as a practical form of utopian thinking? Um, Is it about trying to say, like, this is more than just a thought experiment? Well, the thing is that, you know, these models that produce scenarios of... of, uh, you know, a future that's at two degrees or 1.5 or, you know, net zero by the end of the century, they imply that all of this takes place. So all I'm really doing is fleshing out with some narrative and geospatial detail what's already in these graphs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. I mean, (laughs) you know, people criticize these scenarios in in the models, the model simulations. with these, you know, integrated assessment models that are used and reproduced in reports like that of the Intergovernmental Panel and Climate Change and so on. People critique those as being science fiction, mm-hmm. which they are, but like we have to build it. 
or it's going to be pretty grim. And, uh, you know, this is why I think, you know, you're the, the way that your book really emphatically uh, makes a pitch for them is is so useful because you know like you say it is technically possible to imagine a future of climate restoration there's something reassuring to the reader about seeing that in print you're describing these seemingly science fictional projects in such detail that it actually starts to make them feel doable it and it obviously dovetails with the overarching kind of method of the book which is to emphasize the fact that narratives are cru- are crucial that there is a strategy to to giving a different kind of narrative than these, like, you know, the clean lines of a graph, right? These messier scenarios. And I wondered if you could speak to your your method of employing fiction, um, you know, that that there's a, a specific kind of like reclaiming of the value of fiction for for giving a, a clear sense of the human and experiential quality of climate change, which is so often abstract. Was there something cathartic about writing these these fictional scenarios in the book, or or was it more just a kind of you know, as I think you've put it in a different podcast, a more economical way of conveying the ideas that that you wanted to convey? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to sketch out, you know, in part that these aren't just lines on a graph, but there's a lot of different implementations of of how you know you might be in a net zero world. Um, it could feel one way. It could be a completely different way. You know, the social relations could be really different in in those futures. And I, I think fiction was the easiest way to try to sketch that out. And and in, in terms of also it being science fiction, like you could do the exact same thing with renewables at the scale that the models imply too. I mean, it's not just like carbon removal or solar geoengineering that that's implied with these, right? And and the scale of renewables that are that's, you know, hopefully will be built out is just the sci-fi as all the rest of it. That makes me think of like the the ways in which for me at least, uh, documentaries have a certain kind of pedagogical function. You know, like Nova recently devoted PBS's Nova just recently devoted an episode to the question, can we cool the planet? And they actually give you documented evidence images of these kinds of you know carbon capture and storage methods that exist and i wanted like and i kept thinking about this when reading your book too that you know this this book warrants a documentary like i want to see this put into <laughs> images have you are you looking at any of those kind of media techniques or are you still thinking really primarily about writing as your main uh like mode of of intervention i mean what i'd like to do eventually is have a graphical user interface where people could experiment with different measures and construct their own scenarios, but something that's not just, you know, playing around with numbers and lines, something that can, has additional visual tools that can help you understand the choices made. And it's, it's kind of crazy that we haven't, you know, somebody hasn't built that already. Yeah, wow. I, I, you know, I'd love to see that. And I'm actually uh, speaking with Anna Singh next week for this podcast, and uh, she's been involved in a this really interesting collaborative project called Feral Atlas that is, in a sense, this kind of online graphical user interface that's mostly trying to look at material examples of uh, uh, spaces where uh, life emerges in basically like 
zones of anthropogenic damage and and seeing you know forms of adaptation where you know you're seeing the non-human world attempt to survive in spite of us and to yeah kind of gesture to some of the you know intersections that I see between your work and and other people's work you know there is this this you know really you know convincing now vocabulary of ecofeminism and I wanted to ask a question about maybe your relationship to Elizabeth Colbert's work. You know, I know you cite her work uh, a little bit in After Geoengineering. Her book talks about the shocking discovery of just how much carbon is stored or maybe more specifically absorbed into the oceans um, and what it means for acidification and extinction. Did you use uh, Colbert's book at all as a resource? Um, and, And, you know, why do you think, for example, that book does tend to shy away from the sorts of radical, seemingly science fictional and utopian solutions that you document. Like it is a book that primarily inspires a sense of like tragedy and mourning, um, as does in many ways Singh's books, uh, you know, but yeah, again, what, what's your kind of investment in this ecofeminist discourse and the kinds of emotional registers that it's operating in? I mean, well, first in terms of Colbert's work, I, I would speculate that maybe she shied away from it because her new book is all is all about that. Um, wow. So it'll be out, I think, maybe in April, but I could be wrong, maybe sooner. I think it's called Under a White Sky. So I'm looking forward to that. And I know she goes into solar geoengineering as well as many other kind of technological emergency interventions. It sounds like you have a, a sense of what she's doing in that book. I mean, no, I'm just guessing maybe she wrote a a great long form piece on carbon removal, probably a year or two now. So it's probably been in the works for some time. Um, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that there is now this kind of growing consciousness of the possible tools that are available to us to alleviate, as you say, this extreme climate suffering. Um, and, and the book, you know, I, I won't keep you too much longer. Uh, thanks for, you know, making this, this time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Um, but I wanted to, I guess, end by asking you about your your current, I guess, you know, your attitude toward your your kind of your sense of uh, climate justice groups, right? The the book begins with a sense that there is a kind of gap between um, the demand for drawdown within climate justice groups and the actual scale of industrial activity that's required to to accomplish it. There's still this, I think you perceive at the beginning of the book, a kind of aversion to industry and a rejection of that kind of enlightenment rationality and and this kind of, you know, this hyper-capitalist kind of acceleration of extraction within climate justice groups. But then by the conclusion, you do seem to register uh, like a shift in the consciousness of these groups did you sort of witness during the writing of the book an emergence of that that realization, you know, that we we do need to maybe reevaluate the relationship between technology, capitalism and and carbon removal? I think there's maybe been some of that. I mean, I, I share the concerns that that climate justice groups have, mm-hmm. namely that you know, an architecture for carbon removal internationally would potentially have vast areas of land in the global south purposed for carbon removal so that actors in the north can continue to pollute. I think that's a very clear and present danger. And so I'm glad that 
um, you know, organizations are calling attention to that. I think there's a huge role for, you know, holding organizations accountable. Um, but I also think that it's possible for carbon removal, particularly industrial carbon removal, to further some climate justice aims because now the technology exists for, you know, polluters or countries that have historical responsibility to pull that carbon out of the air and store it safely underground. And so we should be lobbying for that and demanding it, right? I mean, maybe it's far-fetched right now, um, given that, you know, we don't even have (laughs) very much climate policy Mm -hmm. at all, but like we can try to move in that direction, I think. Yeah. And, and I hope that, you know, I hope that many, many people read your book. It has such like a wealth of ideas in it, um, you know, from talking about the need for this kind of emotional intelligence to talking about the need for what you call like mathematical intuitions and numeracy, like a numerical literacy. Like it really is this like broad sweeping book that um, was a real crash course for me um, in, in terms of like thinking about this, this technology that I think you're right, like not a lot of people are aware of. Um, and, and also for, you know, balancing, uh, uh, a real engagement with the, the crisis that, that, that we're facing and the kinds of suffering that are, uh, seemingly now inevitable in some ways and, and balancing that with this sense of hope that as you put it toward the end of the book, there's a gradual movement in public opinion taking place with more lawsuits, more divestment, even more shaming, as you put it, and a shifting tide. Um, you know, you, you've theorized so many things in this book um, and articulated this kind of politics of accountability that I think is really um, incredibly useful. So thanks for talking to me about it. Yeah, thanks for having me.